0: Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Brooks. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and the chair of the science subcommittee within ECC. And today I have the great privilege of speaking with my friend, Dr. Kate Berg, about the creation of the HA 2020 Systems of Care Guidelines. Dr. Berg is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And we're lucky to have her here today because Dr. Berg was the lead author of the Systems of Care Guidelines writing group. So let's just start out. If you could explain to us what the System of Care Guidelines Chapter is, what it entails, what does it cover in general, and why is it important to the HA, the scientific community, and to the public?
0: The way I think of the systems of care guidelines, which is sort of suggested by the name, is that this section of the AHA guidelines really focuses on how we can improve and maximize our healthcare systems, from you know the very local level of a hospital or an EMS agency, all the way up to local or national government healthcare policy to improve cardiac arrest outcomes. You know, rather than focusing on what an individual provider should do when they're treating a or a, you know, lay rescuer when treating a patient with cardiac arrest, they really focus on what a hospital should do or what systems an EMS company should put in place to improve those outcomes. And, you know, the guidelines really do take into account the latest evidence from all over the world. The guidelines are often utilized outside of the U.S. and Canada, but when we consider creating a guideline, we're really kind of trying to weigh all that evidence in light of the usual practice environment in North America. So it is considered with that background in mind. And I think it applies to both individual healthcare providers who are working within these systems and to hospital systems or, again, local and wider governments when thinking about how they need to look at healthcare delivery differently and what new systems they might need to put in place.
1: So this sounds obviously a key chapter, and this is quite a broad scope for this chapter and important to guide us on how to fit all the pieces of the system together and have them optimize outcomes is what I'm hearing. Obviously, that sounds like a very broad evidence base that you have to look at. Can you tell us how the guidelines were drafted, and what kind of evidence or process they've been based on.
0: The American Heart Association, like other similar councils in other parts of the world, works very closely with ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. And many of the recommendations are really derived primarily from the consensus on science and treatment recommendations that ILCOR generates. And those are based on very exhaustive, high-quality, systematic reviews, And are really, I would say, the most definitive weighing of all the evidence that's out there on a given topic. You know, so over the past few years, 2017, 2018, really all of the focused updates were based on those systematic reviews and uh, COSTARS, which is the abbreviation for those treatment recommendations. For 2020, since both AHA and ILCOR really wanted to provide a more comprehensive update, similar to what was done in 2015, we relied on those systematic reviews and COSTARS, but we also used some more rapidly implemented and more streamlined methods for updating the evidence. So those included scoping reviews, which were generally done by either ILCOR task force members or expert reviewers, and also evidence updates. And evidence updates were done by usually a single reviewer, generally an AHA or ILCOR volunteer, um, to just try and review all the evidence since a question was last more formally evaluated with systematic reviews. I mean, those kinds of evidence updates did not necessarily lead to a change in recommendation at the ILCOR level, but could be used to update the guidelines if we thought it was appropriate at the AHA level.
1: You mentioned hospitals and systems, but could you tell us a little bit more about who the target audience is for the systems of care guidelines? Who do we really want to be reading this chapter?
0: Yeah, so I think... And I might be biased by, you know, working on this paper, but the, um, I think really the evidence is anybody who works along any link in the chain of survival for cardiac arrest. So In the primary audience is, again, people who work more at the systems level. So, you know, people who run hospitals or run EMS agencies or these Mobile technologies that can alert lay rescuers to cardiac arrests occurring in the out of hospital setting you know that might be something that a, a local government would be interested in, um, but I also think that you know a paramedic or an ICU nurse when looking at guidelines on you know in hospital cardiac arrest prevention or really any individual provider I think will also find these guidelines useful
1: and I'm hoping as well that um, some of our policymakers are <laughs> going to read this chapter too. I'm not sure if they seek this out, but I think this chapter is one that I'd love to see more of our decision makers and politicians reading as well who are developing legislation and regulation around um, emergency systems of care. Once we've got the 2020 guidelines published, how do you implement them both into HA training programs and messaging, but also maybe tell us a little bit how you see these being implemented in our communities?
0: So I think at the AHA and training level, the training materials up until now have been based on, you know, updates through 2015 with some updates since then. And then once the 2020 guidelines are out, all of those training materials and courses and programs and curricula will be updated to reflect these guidelines. In terms of, you know, outside the AHA at the community level, I think certainly the AHA I know does a lot of advocacy and working with Communities all over the country and trying to implement some of their guidelines. You know things like CPR training in schools and things like that that are not always mandated at a you know school at a governmental level. But I know AHA has been advocates for community interventions like that. You know a lot of these things again like the um, the data suggesting that these you know mobile apps to to notify later rescuers might be helpful in increasing bystander CPR and decreasing time to CPR or defibrillation might be useful or you know things like that, that the AHA obviously can't just implement those things nationwide and that mm-hmm. requires, you know, local government buy-in um, to try and, you know, provide some funding and education and to figure out how to take an intervention like that and really make it work in the setting of mm-hmm. a, you know, a city or a rural area or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think it's a big challenge, you know, it's a, I think this chapter and the content of it really does pose a knowledge translation challenge that is, you know, separate and distinct from improving and optimizing care in the hospital and and care in the ambulance and mm-hmm. you know even care for individuals who arrest in public when we just consider the person that could potentially do bystander CPR and AD. This is larger than that. it it will involve systems, EMS systems, hospital systems, governments, and communities so, you know, I think we have a lot of work to do on thinking about those kind of things and how we get out there and get the message of these guidelines outside of our training courses.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's a particular challenge in countries as geographically big as the U.S. and Canada, and also, at least I can't speak to Canada as much, but in the United States, just Mm -hmm. where there is less in the way of central government oversight and Mm -hmm. and much more broken down to a local level. You know, having spoken with An investigator who's also very involved in health policy and administration in Singapore. It has been, you know, he says this as well has been relatively easy to implement These broad changes in things like EMS policy and again, things like this mobile app and stuff like that there. um, Because things are very centralized and obviously it's a smaller community, but that is an exceptional challenge in the United States.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, the American Heart and, and members of the ECC community have participated in things like the Institute of Medicine report on improving cardiac arrest survival. And, and that document did speak to, a lot to systems of care. And I think, you know, using this guideline as a platform, we can engage in those sorts of knowledge translation activities that really do pull in people outside our scope of medicine and really try to engage with policymakers and others. So I think this chapter is an important bedrock for those kind of activities. So just moving on to the next question I had for you. Um, can you give the listeners some idea of some highlights and key science updates in the 2020 SoC guidelines?
0: Sure. I think the first big one, and again, I have mentioned before the chain of survival of cardiac arrest. And so we actually added an additional link to the chain of survival to really focus on uh, recovery for cardiac arrest survivors. And I think it's important for many reasons. I think both to, you know, first is to recognize that there's a lot more to treating somebody with cardiac arrest than just, you know, doing CPR and resuscitating them. And that, you know, many of our survivors have significant challenges after they survive the initial event and that this recovery, you know, can take months or even years. And that, you know, fortunately there are people who do get back to their prior level of functioning, but that's not the case for a lot of survivors. And so I think this link and we also have you know there's more details on this also in the adult cardiac arrest guidelines um it just really focuses on that process of recovery and in trying to review what evidence is there to help both individual patients and families and communities um, kind of help these folks really recover from the event and move on with their lives so i think that's one important aspect Another one is this data about using mobile apps or other technology to alert lay rescuers who may be in the area to a cardiac arrest event so that people can go to, you know, using all the, you know, we all have these phones that can tell us, tell systems where we are and also locate events like this and that can get people to an event. Um, and, you know, several studies have shown that people can get there faster and start CPR before EMS arrives. Um, you know, most of that data so far, especially with the randomized trials is out of Europe, you know, whether the same practices will make the same differences in the United States due to sort of cultural and geographic differences, I think is not clear, but it does seem that this is a way that we could really increase bystander CPR, which we know is, you know, has a huge impact on survival. So I think that's some exciting data. And then I think that, you know, there's some recommendations around uh, cognitive AIDS, which I think intuitively a lot of us think should be helpful in kind of remembering the you know, the most important steps in resuscitating somebody in cardiac arrest. And the data is a little unclear in suggesting that you know for, again, lay rescuers that cognitive aids might actually even delay somebody getting started in resuscitation, although it might be helpful once things are started and making sure that things are done in a timely way. And that there's really no data on this for you know, professional healthcare providers in the cardiac arrest setting. So there is some data that cognitive aids are helpful in a trauma setting. But there's not really the evidence out there for cardiac arrest. So I think, you know, and this reminds me of one way in which the systems of care guideline is useful. I think for researchers and for those, you know, thinking about funding research or what research needs to be done is that because it has such a broad scope of looking at, you know, this the full range of cardiac arrest care. I think we can highlight some areas where the data is particularly sparse and where more research would be especially helpful. And that that's one, in my opinion. And then finally, I think there's the guidelines highlight the the benefit of looking at one's own data for the sake of continuous improvement so you know and that's looking at cardiac arrest registries and basically showing that participating in these registries and continuously monitoring your own data and also incorporating that data into you know data from multiple other centers and looking at that over time really does seem to lead to improved outcomes and again that's something i think is intuitive but is nice to actually see evidence for and i think could be helpful
1: well, Dr. Berg, thank you so much for speaking with us today and thank you for the incredible amount of work that it took to coordinate this chapter and bring the team together. I would encourage all the listeners to go and read this chapter right now. You know, I see it as the glue that holds the chain of survival together. So a really key chapter for everyone, no matter where you are in the system. Again, thank you, Dr. Berg. I really appreciate everything you've told us about the chapter. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for the chance to do this. And also thanks to all of my co-authors on this chapter, um, all the chairs and vice chairs and other contributors from all the different writing groups. It's a very multidisciplinary group and I think leads to an interesting chapter. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit CPR.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.